to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I am Jenny Taylor. And Michelle, today we have a guest that I have been wanting to get on for quite a while to talk about a really tender topic. This is my cute sister-in-law, Janelle. Janelle, say hi. Hi. And we today, we're grateful that you'll join us. I know today's topic will be very tender. We're talking about miscarriage. We're talking about childbirth and postpartum. We're talking about infertility and childbearing and all of the above. Which well, All my favorite subjects. Uh, yes. I was my telling her. for politics. Michelle is a very experienced doula and has walked the road of infertility more than most. Yeah. And so anyway, Janelle, we're grateful you would join us and open your heart a little bit to us and wondered if you might start by just giving us a little background. Can you introduce us to you, your family, your husband, your kids, kind of where life was 10 or 20 years ago, where you guys are now? Yeah, of course. I have lived in Arizona most of all my life. It is Zion to us. It is the most beautiful place on the earth. Um, we love the heat and we hate the snow. So it actually works out <laughs> perfect. Um, much to my family, chagrin, all from Utah, they uh, they just get us, you know, when weather's beautiful there and you can't breathe here because it's perfect. so hot. Yep. <laughs> um, I was actually trying to, like, figure out, like, how to introduce me and who I am. And I realized I can't really do that without just kind of telling my husband a nice story. Derek and I met at 12 and 14 you know, and our home ward Can at you our believe church. That? And we really don't have like many memories apart. We never dated. We were never romantic, but we have been friends and hung out almost every weekend since I was 12 years old. Wow. Like, so, so That's many of odd. my memories, it is, it is like so many of my memories are all with him. Like, yes, we lived our own lives. We dated our own people. We had our own experiences, but he has been at the center of my life for so long. We were in the same group of friends. We were at church every Sunday. We did all these activities together. We went to the same high school. He played volleyball with my older brother, so I was at every game and tournament. He served a two-year LDS mission for our church in Georgia, and we wrote the whole time on his mission. Um, It wasn't until he got back and I saw him again, and he had this southern twang in his voice, and he had these like impeccable manners, like out of nowhere. Like I, I knew pre Southern gentleman. You know, pre, yes, like I knew Derek before his mission, and he came home just different. Like he was the same, but he just was, he was just different and older. And I all of a sudden was like, my heart would start pumping. And this was weird because this was Derek Taylor. I mean, he is tall and I am short. And, and it's a darling picture to see and, the like, two of them <laughs> so separated in height. <laughs> We are, I, even when we were dating, I had to make a list of like good things of why he was so tall and I was so short because I was like, this is so weird. I'm so uncomfortable with this, but obviously we've made it work. So it took him six months to ask me out on our first date. And then five weeks later, I asked him basically to marry me because he was taking so long. (laughs) Like I am not a patient person. Janelle, I love you. Wait, wait. Five weeks. He was taking so long. Five weeks. Hold on a second. Well, when you know, you know, Michelle. Come on. When you know, you know. I had grown up with this kid. I knew his family. I knew his friends. I knew every person he had dated. I, I knew him. And so when we started dating and I realized he was the one that I wanted, like patience was gone. It was so funny. He's like, you didn't even wait. Like I was saving up for a ring. I was going to, you know, but I just, I just wanted, like I was ready. He was who I wanted. 
And I was like, all right, let's do this. So, well, actually, you know, I have two to say, later, we were married. <laughs> I have to say that you're kind of like a girl after my own heart. I tend to <laughs> grab things I want and take them and run with it and run with it. And um, I think you two would like yeah. each other. Do you know yeah. when you're in town, we're going to lunch with Michelle yeah, for next sure. time. Oh, you yay. two, I love you this. two will get along. I promise. I recently went out on a date and I've been rejected from this guy that I think is adorable because he said I'm too aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is aggression? I mean, just passionately knowing what you want. Like, right. It's, okay to stop it's not aggressive. Aggression? <laughs> Come on. Come on. <laughs> nah. I love it. Okay, so yeah, you got married. Um, what year was that? I have to remember because my baby two, Megan was little. So, 06? 2006. Okay, 2006. So I graduated in 05 and I was married in 06. Oh, you so, little baby. I love it. So sweet. I know. We were babies. Oh, we were so little. We look back now and. We've actually showed the kids our wedding video a few nights ago, and Derek and I were, like, kind of embarrassed. We're like, oh, my gosh. Were we old enough to get married? (laughs) We were just, like, so googly-eyed, and I was like, it was sweet, but I was so... Yeah, we... 2006, we got married. I went to finish my degree at ASU. I graduated with my bachelor's in family studies and child development. Three months into marriage, Derek joined the Army and took off to BASIC and AIT, and he's been in the Arizona National Guard now for 15 years. 2009, we welcomed our first sweet baby Jane. Um, she's 12 now. And I still call her baby Jane. Baby Jane. She's baby Jane. She's my baby um, Jane. 2011, we had our boy Andrew, who's 10. And then 2014, we had Ruth, my seven-year-old. She's my baby. She's my last. She's the baby who wasn't supposed to be the baby, so she is spoiled beyond belief. Uh, she calls herself my seven-year-old toddler as well because she's like, I'm just mom's <laughs> baby, like forever. Like, oh, she loves is it. so sweet. All right, so tell us, what does work and everything look like now? Derek, you said, is still in the Arizona yes. National Guard. What's his so, profession? What do you do uh, in um, or outside of the home? Derek uh, went to PA school. We actually went to school through the Army. The Army has a physician assistant program, so we went to school through them. It was an amazing experience moving. We moved around a couple times, um, but he works in surgery now, um, loves it. I I feel like Derek has a million jobs. Like Derek does his guard, Derek does surgery, he does on call. So I keep everything running. I'm kind of the glue that holds it together. And then I work, I say very part-time, you guys, like very, very part-time at my kids' school, they asked me to a position called a parent liaison. I just I work with their Title One program. I help plan events. I feel like I'm kind of like their glorified party planner, and I love it because I get to do everything for my kids' school and make it better. So I love it. Like we just we just stay really busy. She um, has she are- has an ability to connect with kids. I mean, she. Obviously, she's a mom of three. She's an aunt of a billion. My kids love her. Everybody loves her. She's feisty and keeps the kids in line, but she can connect with them in a way that I envy. Like, I I have a lot of kids, but I don't have that ability that you have. And what she didn't say is the school hired her after she was the PTO president because she did such a phenomenal job as a volunteer. They knew they couldn't let her go. So they're like, we're going to, can you, can you stay on payroll somehow, even though the payroll is very small and the hours are very, like she says, part time, but they knew something good when they saw it and they couldn't let her go. I love it. That's awesome. That was fun. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of us. So Jenny talked about this being about miscarriage, but you just told us that you have these three kids. Tell us the story about your struggles, infertility and and loss. Yeah, I feel like there's kind of like two Janelles. There's um, beginning Janelle. You know, there's Janelle in her 20s. 
And Janelle in her 20s, I mean, like, having babies was effortless. Well, getting pregnant was effortless. I picked my kid's birthday. I was like, all right, Derek, do you want to have a baby, like, in February? Like, maybe at the beginning, like, oh, that'll be... I plan pregnancies in Arizona because you do not want to be pregnant, really pregnant through the summer. 117 on a eight-month pregnant belly is not your friend. That sounds right. terrible. So, like, I, I could plan my pregnancies. Like, I mean, I blinked and I was pregnant, and I didn't have great pregnancies. They were hard, but, you know, it just, it wasn't, I didn't think about it. It's just something that always happened. I had my oldest, she came emergency C-section at 35 weeks, kind of like very surprised out of the blue. I had my college graduation in the hospital during recovery. I think my nurses, like, peeked their head in that day and were like, happy graduation day. And I was like, look at this thing that ruined it. Like, I mean, she was beautiful, wonderful, but she just surprised me. It didn't go according to plan. It didn't. I'm a planner. you are a planner. This is a big thing. I love, oh, I love planning. I love neat. What was the cost of the emergency Um, cesarean? So my water just partially broke. Oh, okay. Like, and her heart rate started dropping Ooh, and they yeah. were just like, Oh, we're done. We're done. And yeah. I was like, Oh, so, you know, I had, you know, I wanted to deliver her the way I thought it should be. And it didn't go according to my plan. And I had to readjust it because I had my other two kids as C-sections as well. Andrew came at 39 and a half weeks, totally picked his birthday around when my mom was out of nursing school on a break. <laughs> and I was like, okay, my mom's like, I can do it this time. I can help you. And I was like, perfect. I'm going to get pregnant here then. So, you know, and he came out with a broken arm. We had mastitis to deal with that. We had irritation from C-section scrub. We had infection on like the incision line. Like there's always hiccups I feel with my kids when they come. Um, And then Ruth came C-section again, but we were at Fort Seal, Oklahoma. It was when Derek was in PA school. And the, the fun surprise Ruth brought, she was an angel baby but I hit postpartum depression really hard with her. I had realized looking back, I had baby blues with Jane that then got worse to Andrew Mm -hmm. when I had him. And then when Ruth came, it was full-blown postpartum depression. And it was really hard thing to kind of go through being alone, like not alone. I had a great military family around me. I had a great church family around me, but I didn't have my family around me. Right. And she was born in February in the middle of all the snow. And we all know yeah. how I feel about snow. And it's cold so and it gray just, and miserable. It was yeah. so cold. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my three babies in my 20s. Yeah, with a few hiccups, but everything was perfect. Can we let's stop right there. We're going to take a quick break. And I feel like this might be our best spot. When we come back, can you tell us a little more about that postpartum? And then let's talk about I love how you said Ruth was the baby that wasn't supposed to be your baby. And let's get into that. We'll take a quick break and be right back. And we're back with Janelle, and she was telling us about her stories of her children and having baby Jane and Andrew and Ruth, the postpartum depression that built over each pregnancy. And you had said that your baby, Ruth, was not supposed to be your last baby. So let's talk about that postpartum depression a little bit, and then let's talk about this last baby that wasn't supposed to be the last. 
Right. Um, so postpartum depression, it was very new to me. I was very lucky. Um, I had an amazing doctor in Oklahoma, which I was very worried about because you hear some horror stories sometimes about military hospitals or, you know, medical care on base. And so I was very nervous, but I had this amazing new doctor fresh out of school, signed up for the military and he was really good. I just, oh guys, this feels like another life ago. Um, So my postpartum hit really hard and what happens after my pregnancy and I have terrible hormones and they're raging and, you know, everyone just is work. But I realized all of a sudden, like, I don't know if we could call it because of the hormones, but like, I noticed that I couldn't find my happiness anymore. I looked at my children and as grateful as I was for them, it was just every day was so struggle. And when I have postpartum, um, it's really interesting because there are physical side effects of it. I know that there is like a mental aspect as well. It is very dark for me. I have a very hard time. I can't even find comfort in what brings me comfort. You know, my children, my husband, my family, my faith. But like there is physical aspects of it that I feel like Sometimes I don't know if people realize this. So, like, for example, when I am in the midst of postpartum and this depression that enfolds around me, like, there is a heaviness to me. I feel like I'm walking around with, like, a weighted vest on. Walking across the room just takes longer. It's harder. It's heavier. Like, you know, most frustrating situations, you're quicker to yell or to snap. Um, and, And just tears. I cried all the time. You know, it's kind of interesting. I'm looking back at the dates of this. Postpartum depression, you'd think that we'd know more about it as long as women have been birthing babies. And you know that Mm -hmm. this isn't something that has just happened in the past 10 years. But we actually don't know a lot about it. And I went through some postpartum anxiety disorder with my children. But looking back, I could see it happening from my second child. And then it also compounded And so it was interesting that you brought that up because I think that we just don't know enough. And I think that there are little warning signs within each pregnancy before you get to that big break. It maybe doesn't always happen that way, but I think that from the women that I've talked to, I I hear this a lot. Yeah, you're right, Michelle. It's just, and I don't think because I didn't have any family that had experienced it. I certainly felt like I hadn't gone through it. It was just it was a learning curve. It was, I did go on medication and it made the world of a difference. And I was grateful that I had a doctor that I saw at appointments. I saw at church. I was good friends with his wife. So I had a doctor who was a little bit more influential in my life who could help manage it and help me see things. I think too, part of you're really lucky. And I think, yeah, not every woman I, I has, yeah, you're really lucky for like fortunate. It was truly a blessing because I think normally like my mom would have picked up on cues or my sisters would have seen something off like if I was home. But Right, because they know you well enough to notice. Right. And I had a husband who was in school doing rotations and was gone. And, you know, I had this beautiful baby and these two little kids. And if I didn't have that extra help, I worry. I think a big part, like um, I, with my depression, I get, I get very dark. And those dark thoughts very easily turn into suicidal thoughts. And I'm just so grateful that I had that extra love and support. I mean, I think it's okay to be like, hey, I've had terrible suicidal thoughts and be like, but that doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to act on those. I think sometimes just acknowledging what's going on and thinking through it and being like, this isn't me. I I feel like the term irrational thoughts were very key to me understanding 
my depression and my postpartum because I realized that, yes, this was a thought I had, but it was an irrational thought and I didn't need to feed it. Right. I could understand it and then try to, I don't want to, I can't even say the word control it because there's so little control sometimes I had in the way I felt, but I could acknowledge it and be like, I see you, I know you're there, but you don't get a win today. Like, I can't get rid of you, but you don't get to have that control. I'm going to fight it. And I think that's such an important thing because so often, you know, you mentioned you didn't have your family nearby or whatever when you were at the time living away from your own family having this baby. But I think another problem with something like postpartum is even when we're with those that we know and love and have for decades, we as a culture don't talk enough about this. We look at that Mm -hmm. sweet little baby and we're so excited and she's so healthy and he's so beautiful and congratulations, mom. And sometimes those dark thoughts or that anxiety or that depression that comes with the sleeplessness and the hormones and everything else, we don't talk enough about it. So we feel like I'm the worst mother ever because I'm having these dark thoughts when really a lot of women have experienced some degree of that. But don't you think, I I know for me, it was like, who do I tell? Yeah. Like if I tell someone they're going to think I'm a terrible mother or they're going to take my child away and that'll make this worse. and. And so it kind of feeds itself too. It it's it's a terrible monster. And I love what you you said that that you were battling this internal battle. It is almost like you're two people. Like you have your rational mind going, "That's not okay. That's an irrational mm-hmm. thought." But you have this irrational mind who's like weighing you down. Like you talked, everything feels heavier. It's very physical. It's very physical. Yeah. It's such a weight. I think Jenny and I can relate to that yeah, even, even just in our yeah. grief. Um, there are days where it just feels heavy. Yeah. And I'm sure that that's part of what you're going through, too. There is a level of grief, right? right. You have this baby. Yeah. You're no longer pregnant. You have all these hormones going on. It's just a different phase. But sometimes, like, maybe there's a little bit of grief that I didn't have the birth I wanted or I didn't whatever yeah. happened or maybe i'm just know? physically exhausted because yeah. you've at this point janelle you've given birth three times in in five years that's a lot on well, a body two small children cesarean <laughs> sections a husband in school the physical demands yeah. i do love what you said that you acknowledged the darkness you yep. acknowledged those voices you acknowledged that hard but you didn't let them win i think we could talk for hours about that right there that you didn't sweep it under a rug or pretend you didn't feel that but you didn't give into that i think that's powerful But I would love it if you could take us from that 2014-15 when you had baby Ruth. You've got that postpartum. You're getting medication. You're getting some help. You're kind of getting to the point where maybe you're at least recognizing the darkness and not succumbing to it. But then you go on to try to have another baby and find a new kind of loss to deal with. Can you walk us through that? Of course. Of course. So, you know, it took about three years and... I was like, okay, you know, we're ready. Like, let's do this. I have to pump myself up. I know how sick I'm going to be. I know how hard it's going to be with three older kids and three different schedules. So I feel like in order to do this, I want to kind of like take 30 seconds to go through two years because there's just a bunch of little things that happened in this. I want to have another baby. And I feel like kind of like listing these dates makes everything sound really simple but it was anything but. So fourth pregnancy, right? We're going for fourth pregnancy. Got pregnant, May 2017. Yay, right? Okay, let's go to eight weeks later. I find out I have a mass in my right breast and I have a cancer scare. So here I am, eight weeks pregnant, trying not to freak out, trying to, you know, stay calm and get a biopsy done. 
just because I'm like, you know what? I, I have to know. Oh, yeah. If, you do you have know, to is, know. Is there something even yeah. more wrong? You know, that was kind of like my first little hiccup. Eight weeks in, I was like, okay, well, let's find out. Got the biopsy done. Everything's benign. They just said, we want to take out this mask eventually. So keep it in the back of your mind. Does not need to be now. You're pregnant. Focus on your baby. So in September of that year, about 17 weeks along, I go to my doctor's office for an ultrasound and there's no heartbeat. And it crushed me. Like, this didn't happen to me, right? Like, I have my babies. I do what I feel like is right. I pray. I feel good about everything. So we had we had our first miscarriage. So, you know, September 2017, fast forward almost a year later, November 2018, we lost Brent, my husband's brother, Jenny's husband, one of the best friends to our family. We lose him a year after my miscarriage. January 2019, a couple months after losing Brent, I go through my second miscarriage. And then June 2019 of that same year, I miscarry for the third time. So they were painful. I mean, all of a sudden, I went to just being 20s Janelle, popping out those babies, just getting things done to where being in my 30s, all of a sudden, I had infertility problems. I was anxious. I was depressed. I was surrounded by this darkness again. And after every single miscarriage, postpartum came back stronger every single time. It didn't matter that I didn't carry full term anymore. Like Mm -hmm. for that postpartum to hit, I was once again, you know, I had this darkness around me after every single time. And so every miscarriage, it would hit again. The fourth pregnancy, it hit the strongest. But then it still happened on the fifth pregnancy, and then it happened on the sixth pregnancy. And it was hard. I had terrible pregnancies, followed by a miscarriage, followed by DNCs. It was, it just felt like never-ending blows. It crumbled me. I'm just looking at the notes I've taken of the calendar of all of this. That is so much in less than a two-year period. Yeah. From from fall of 2017 to summer of 2019. Can you tell us what what was that darkness of the miscarriages like? Um where where did that take you? Where did it take your marriage? Where did it take your three yeah. healthy living children? Can you walk through kind of the family dynamic of that as we know you're struggling what what does that look like in the home? So, let me kind of explain a little bit what I was going through because as the mom we do have a tendency to control the emotions sometimes of the family or or how they react or how they handle things, depending on how you handle a situation. 100%. You um, set that tone. So I was angry, like really, really angry. First, and I, once again, another irrational thought, okay, I was angry at myself. I blamed myself. You know, this was my body that held these babies last, and they died because of me. And I don't think that's a rational thought. That's not what happened. There was a complication. There was a problem. There's a million things that can go wrong in a pregnancy that can lead to a miscarriage. But even though I know that's not true, it still feels true. And I'd love to tell you that all these years later, I don't feel that way anymore. But there is just that part of you that just is like, what could I have done that then could have made my baby live instead I was really angry at God. I was really mad. 
and I think it took a while to like for me to realize my wrongs in that relationship or why I was so mad but like why didn't he want me to have another baby what was I doing wrong I kept thinking like am I not a good enough mother because this keeps happening to me and I just kept I don't know it's like you're angry you you need someone to blame you need to find a point to try to explain it all you know but in the process of all this anger I was grieving like and I think that's a big part of it's interesting in a miscarriage because you grieve it but you don't have anything to grasp I my heart was shattered I ached you know for those little hands oh those chubby fingers those super baby soft cheeks that's what I wanted but that's not what I got what I got instead was this cold sterile room of a DNC of these terrible moments of reliving ultrasounds with no heartbeats I was grieving for this. We talked about like the physical, like tears were endless. I just would collapse. Um, You know, Janelle, um, working with women in pregnancy and childbirth for the 20 years that I did, you know, the hard thing with miscarriage, especially because there's a vast degree of when it happens, mm -hmm. it can happen early and there is actually no body to grieve. There's not, you're not left with a body to hug, to release and let go of. And that creates its own mental gymnastics within itself because once we get pregnant, we immediately start fantasizing about this baby that we're going to be holding and smelling and raising and dreams for its future. And, And so when we're left with nothing, it's just like, what do you really grieve? And then in American society, another taboo, uh, kind of area, we don't, we don't talk about miscarriage. We don't talk about loss. We don't talk about, we don't talk about loss in general. We give people mm-hmm. like Jenny and I get, got the privilege of a year to grief basically. And we're both almost at three years now. And I'm sure some people would say they really need to stop talking about it and move on. <laughs> but that's not really the way it works. And that's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast. Right. right? And so, exactly. so, you know, I feel like, it's so compounded for you because you're also, you're away from your family. So your support system is challenged and, and then you don't have this baby to be able to hold on to and to grieve. And by societal terms, you're not even really given, even, even in church terms. I mean, people will say, Oh, I'm sorry. Or, Oh, I heard about this or, or whatever, but that's it. That's all you get. There's no funeral. There's no, goodbye there's no and and even in a later term pregnancy where you might have those things it's just not very common that people really give you the space to really grieve this as a real loss and it is every bit a real loss yeah we need to take a break right now when we come back we want to hear the rest of of your story and we'll be right back loss and the feelings of not being good enough and being angry at God. And how do you reconcile that? Like, at what point do you start to figure out that you're not being punished? Or that Um, you're not to blame? Right. Right. 
I think, and I hate this answer, like I've always hated it when people told it to me, but it just took time. Like it took time. Like I just hit the two-year mark of my third miscarriage, and I look back and I just realized it took time. And for me, it was very like um, what really got me through everything was my faith, my religion, really pouring my heart out to my Heavenly Father, reading scriptures, going to church, like really devoting the time to finding that answer, because that answer is never just going to come on its own. It's something that has to actively be sought. Like we talked about like the anger, you know, my anger, and we talked about like my grieving. But I think, too, a big thing that I felt that I had to deal with was guilt. And it was very interesting because it it deals a lot with like my kids. So I would feel so much guilt when it came to my kids, because here I had three beautiful, perfect, healthy kids, but I could only mourn for the three kids that I lost. Like those three babies, it's like I, I like had to like, like, like my viewpoint, my um, everything shifted and I was so caught up in my own grief for the three that I lost that I almost forgot about the three that I had. And I realized there was a lot of guilt that I associated with that. I was like, what, why am I, I have to refocus. Like I have to pay attention um, to them and to what they're going through. After my first miscarriage, my, my little Ruth was three years old and she looked at me one day and this was only like a couple weeks after it happened. She just looked at me and I wrote this down because the thing she said to me, some things that she said to me were so amazing. And she just said, mom, I'm so sorry that your baby died for a three-year-old to see my emotion and to comprehend it and then be able to try to soothe me, I was floored. And I think I had enough little moments like that throughout the years that I realized that, one, this wasn't a me thing. This was a family thing. Like, I could get so caught up in the why me, help me, why can't I understand that I forgot that it wasn't a me, it was a we. I realized the depth and the understanding that my children had And I learned very quickly not to underestimate them, not to underestimate their love, their comprehension, how they're feeling, because they got it so much more than what I was giving them credit for. So it was interesting just kind of learning to work through that guilt of, yes, those were great potentials. Going through a miscarriage, losing that baby, there's always that idea, that potential, that dream but I had to refocus my dreams to realize that it was then about my kids. My husband and I went through a lot of things. It is very rare to say going through any trial does not bring good and bad out in people. And there was a lot of frustrating times. Um, And I think more than it's hard to get women to talk about miscarriages, I think it's even harder to get the husband to want to be opened up and deal with the emotion of a miscarriage. And I think a lot of times I would be offended. Why wasn't he grieving like me? Does that mean he doesn't love me? Does he not love this baby? Does he love our real children? Like, once again, I'm having a logical thought, but nevertheless, they're, they're there. And I had to, like, address them. And it took a lot of talking, and it took years. But I realized that Derek, and he has told my kids this from day one, that I am his number one responsibility. I always have been, and I always will be. So in his mind, as much as he was sad that he lost that baby, he needed to make sure that 
I was taking care of, that his number one priority and his number one responsibility was taking care of me. And he realized that my connection to the baby was stronger than his. I I was growing it inside of me. I was the one feeling it move before he could even get a, you know, his hand on the belly to feel a kick. Like there was a connection that I had that was stronger and he was fine with that. Um, There was frustrations. He would try to talk to me. He would try to give me all this wonderful advice and I would reject it. I would push it away. But in that same day, if my mom gave me that same advice that he had just given me, like my mom was a genius. Mm-hmm. And I took every single word of that advice, but yet I couldn't, it's, you know, like it's the ones you love the most, the ones you rely on the most, or sometimes the ones that you can take it out on or be frustrated with. And because I felt he wasn't grieving appropriately how I was, then there were times where he was wrong and I was right. When in reality, he is his own person. He has his own soul. And we grieved differently. And his way of grief came out by taking care of me and making sure that my needs were met. Derek could have cared less that I took my mom's advice over his, even though it was the same because he was just happy. I was getting advice that I was finally taking something in. I was getting better. That was how he channeled his grief was just by taking care of by taking care of me, by taking care of my kids. Because there was a lot of moments within those miscarriages within those two years that I couldn't, I couldn't be there, but he could. And that's how he worked through the grief that he felt. That's so beautiful. I, you just hit on so many important topics there. The, the fact that we do sometimes push away those who are closest to us or we set up the walls or we don't want to hear it from them, but we'll listen to someone else, but also recognizing how uniquely each person grieves. And then the takeaway right. from that, for me anyways, there's no right or wrong way to grieve. And I might sit and cry and cry and cry all day, and you might handle it a completely different way. And neither one of us is wrong, and neither one of us is grieving more or less. And I think that's, again, back to kind of these cultural tendencies we have in society. We do kind of tend to compare and compete and judge. And, well, you're, oh, not, yes. you're not crying enough, or you're crying way too much, or you've mm-hmm. been crying too long, or you're worried too much. I mean, we are so quick to point all of those fingers all around us. Mm-hmm. And yet how beautiful for you to come to that realization that you're grieving your loss, he's grieving his loss. Above all, you want to come together and love each other and not turn on each other. And and beautiful that it sounds like you've been able to do that. Can you take us from that time a couple of years ago through today? Mm-hmm. How, how are things? Is the darkness still as strong? Does it come as often? Yeah. Can you walk us through that? So there is a quote that I have wrapped my entire life around that I wanted to tell you guys. And it, um, I actually got it like on a little plaque when we got married. And I was like, oh, how sweet, you know, put it, you know, on a shelf somewhere. But I think my whole life has evolved around it. And it's by Mother Teresa. And she says, we cannot all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. And that is how oh, I, love that. I have gotten out of the darkness. It is by small things, not big things. It is by the smallest things. I feel like there are several things that got me out of my darkness. One was service. Service, I think, was the number one thing. I had to stop thinking about myself, and I had to do it by starting to help other people. Like, in order for me to stop thinking about my own darkness, I had to become a light to someone else in their life. 
I had to bring someone else joy. I had to do something for other people. And when I started doing that, I could start thinking less about me and my problems. And I still do this to this day when I start boohooing my life. But just the trials I go through, I start being like, well, what, what does someone else need? And I didn't do this on my own. I had a really good friend. Her name's Ashley. And bless her soul, just started bossing me around a little bit. You know, she'd be like, hey, guess what? This person's sick. They could use a meal. Can you bring them this day? Can you sign up? Here's the sign up. Or, hey, let's let's go stop by this person or let's go do this. Like, she literally every single week found something for me to do and then in the best way possible pressured me into doing it to get me, one, out of my comfort zone and back into the world. I, I couldn't do it on my own. So, like I said, and then I think at times, too, it was serving my family. Like, after any one of those miscarriages, it was really hard for me to want to, like, cuddle or snuggle. And my kids still needed that. So there were times where I literally set a timer on my phone so that I could give my kids each five minutes of snuggles because that's all I could handle. But that was still a way for me to serve them, to love them. Like, making dinner. I mean, it's hard now. It was really hard then to make dinner, just to get through a day to do something. But I realized it was serving. It was serving to overcome my sadness. Um, A big thing, too, that really helped me get through everything was empathy. I learned a lot about empathy, and I'm grateful for that. But I feel like that wasn't something that just came. I feel like I earned it. I had to go through these really hard trials to understand empathy and to be able to understand other people more. And when I understood them, I could help them. And I found that as I was able to open up or even share with other people that I knew about my miscarriages, all of a sudden I helped them through theirs. I found it really interesting that in the span of me talking to other people, all of a sudden when other people miscarried, they, they would come to me. This is what I went through with empathy too. After my first miscarriage, two days actually after my miscarriage, I found out on a Thursday that Saturday, I was throwing my sister her baby shower. Like we were finally pregnant together. We were so excited. And then all of a sudden, I had to throw a shower with my dead baby still inside of me because my body wasn't doing it the natural way. (sighs) And so there was just a lot of like, but... But it was great because I realized that, yes, this was sad, but the love for my sister, the other bonds and the ties in life were stronger. And even though she was like, you don't have to do this, we can cancel it. And I was like, but I love you and this is worth it to me. And I learned this empathy. I learned to feel and to love and to help and to serve in spite of of my own darkness in spite of my own trials. And when I was able to give myself a little bit more of that mindset, I was able to just move on. Um, the now third that thing is was- the absolute definition of resiliency. When you are able to <laughs> be honest with exactly where you are and, and the truth of the, your situation and, and still say, but I love yeah. you and I'm going to continue forward and I'm going to serve you. I mean, right. that is beautiful. And huge. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I mean that oh, is no. just. Oh no! Thank you for that comment. That was, I mean, no, it's it was huge. It was a it was a hard moment. Let me tell you, it was hard. <laughs> but I, like I said, there was enough love outweighed the hardness of that situation. 
I think the last thing, and this really touches a lot with like building back my relationship with my heavenly father and that frustration and that anger I felt was I had to work on my faith. I had to work on my faith. I, like I said, I like being in control. I like making these decisions. Um, And I just had to remember that even though I had faith, not giving up that control, you know, I'm not letting go of that steering wheel. I'm just asking my Heavenly Father to hold it with me. When I think of faith in my situation, when I can have this faith, when I can trust my Heavenly Father to get me through the darkness, and when I think about it without faith, I'm just alone in that darkness. So I had to start realizing, like, I need to bring back this faith. I need to put my trust back into a to a Heavenly Father who loves me, who knows me, who has walked beside me through this, and to slowly, for me, open myself back up to that relationship. I think a really good concept that I kept telling myself, too, was bad things happen to good people. And just because I was striving to live a faithful life, to do everything that I was supposed to be doing, doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen to me. Maybe more things might happen to me because I'm striving so hard to live this way. But it definitely, when I look back and I look at the, the service that, that drew me out, finally got me moving again. And then the empathy I learned and was able to help people. And then just the nonstop work of faith. And that's what I'd like to point out, too, is it's work. None of this just came. I finally had to just shove myself out of bed and just do it and just do the smallest things. You know, like going back to that Mother Teresa quote, it was not great things. It was not big things. It was small things. But I could do each one of those teeny, tiny, small things with love. And that love helped me overcome the darkness. This this is so incredible, Janelle. I think you have taught us so much. I, I love hearing you put this all into kind of one story. Obviously, you and I have been friends through the time that this has happened and and seen kind of the the events as they they've unfolded. But you and I don't live as close geographically as we would like to. And to hear you put this all into a storyline with the ups and the downs and the bumps and the bruises and the lessons learned is really inspiring. And I just love you so much. I love the way you've opened your heart to help all of us learn that that love and service really are the key to to that resilience, to coming out of that darkness. I love how you said, and it's just hard work. It's not like one day I just magically felt better and my problems went away. It's I rolled my mm-hmm. behind out of bed and said, I guess I'm going to do something today, even if it's just teeny tiny. And I love the many different lessons about resilience that you've shared with us today. I love your sweet family. I love that you get to be a mother, not only to your three children here and the three that you 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 were working to bring into this life, but you are just a mother to every child you meet. Like I said before, you have that tender, loving ability to connect with small people, and they they <laughs> recognize that in you. And they love you. My children are among them. I know the children in your church and school communities that you serve are among them. And I just say, God bless the world for letting Janelle Taylor be a part of it, a part of my life. And I thank you so much for joining us today and and sharing with our listeners who probably more than we would think have had some type of infertility or miscarriage loss. There are more, more men and women 
than you know we would commonly know. So thank you for being so real with us and just so inspiring. So the, grateful to have you. I, I love that quote from Mother Teresa. Um, when I had my birth business, there was a Dutch proverb that I used to use as my tagline that was similar, very close. It was something like, uh, great things come from small small things. Or I, I can't remember exactly how it went now, but I wanted to just say, when you were talking about empathy and you would share with other people, about your loss and, and and when people would experience miscarriage, they'd come and talk to you. That is such an important part of the grieving process to actually mourn with those that mourn. And we all need a witness to our loss and to our grief. And so it's one of the most powerful things you can do. And it's really the only thing that we can do for one another. So I love that. It's powerful. It's part of why this podcast works. We are providing a space for people to come on to share their stories and to be heard and to have others witness their loss. And And we're all going to suffer in this life. We're all going to do hard things. We're all going to walk through fire. And it's not going to be a one and done. And it's not going to be just a one-time thing. And, you know, we start off in our 20 with ideals and hope and the, the grandeur of perfection of a great life lived and then our 30s come and re- realize we've made a few mistakes and our 40s come and challenges <laughs> come and our 50s comes and we start to lose people we love, you know. So it's all just the process, right? This is the human experience. But the best thing that we can do for one another is to provide that witnessing. And you did that so well and in the midst of your own pain and grief. And that is just really amazing. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today. I wish we had more time. Definitely want to do that lunch uh, with you and Jenny when you come to town. So grateful that Janelle would join us today. We're grateful to our listeners for coming along these beautiful journeys with us. If you are listening and you have a story or a loved one or friend that you know who has a story about real life experiences that you would be willing to share, we would love to hear that. Please find us on social media at Relentlessly Resilient on Facebook and Relentlessly Resilient Podcast on Instagram. We're grateful that you're joining us. We hope you'll find us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us a rating and a review and help us know how we can make the show even more powerful and impactful in your life. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day.